Good morning, my name is Chris, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make, you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Molly, and the New Testament reading is found in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Understand that in the same way that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are the children of Abraham. But when it saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. Therefore, those who believe are blessed together with Abraham who believed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Becca, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 1, 14 and verses 16 and 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, as we hear your word this morning, open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but we've had the Olympics on quite a bit in our house, uh, more than we would normally have the TV on, but have you enjoyed watching it? Uh, it's an amazing thing to see all of the different athletes compete and see them rise. I mean, we've enjoyed watching uh, Simone Biles in the gymnastics competitions. We've enjoyed uh, seeing Michael Phelps, of course, and, and uh, Simone Manuel, the first African-American female to uh, uh, win a gold medal. I mean, just some remarkable stories. And I think that's part, of the, that's part of the beauty of the Olympics is the stories, right? My favorite story, or one of my favorite stories, of course, is uh, Phelps beating the South African swimmer who had been taunting him, you know, shadow boxing in front of him and the Phelps face, you know, um, scowling at him. And then to see Phelps, find, you know, beat him a few days ago and then kind of do this and then a little bit of this, you know. And there's something inside us that says, yeah, you know. <laughs> because we love these stories. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of, of glory, really, if we're honest. And especially when you think about uh, maybe, maybe you've, you've read some of the pieces or heard some of the interviews of, of, of Phelps having kind of his um, um, down season when he took a break, when he, when he sort of early retired at the end of 2012 and kind of the road back. And we love that. We love the journey of the hero, the hero who faces adversity and somehow rises over it and rises in triumph over his enemies. This is the story of glory. 
And appropriately, the Olympics, of course, you know, patterned after the early games in Athens and all of that, the Greeks were well known for their story of glory. The Greeks were well known for their desire to attain glory, this this sense deep in all of us to reach for something beyond ourselves, to etch our names in immortality because of this glory that we have achieved. Homer uh, wrote these great po- epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I have not read either, but I have seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt. <laughs> now, my wife listens to podcasts analyzing the poems of Il- the Iliad and the Odyssey. I watched the movie. And um, in, in the movie, you, you see the scene as well. It's a little bit different. But, but in the poem, there's this scene where Achilles is, is debating whether or not to enter into the battle or to, to go home. And so this is, the, this is the little excerpt from it. Achilles in the Iliad says, My mother Tatis tell, that tells me that there are two ways in which I may meet my end, two ways in which I may die. If I stay here and fight, I will not return alive, but my name will live forever. Whereas if I go home, he says, my name will die. Nobody will remember me, but it will be long before death shall take me. To the ancient Greeks, there was something worse than dying young. It was living a long life and having no glory, not leaving your mark, being forgotten after the grave. And so for the ancient Greeks, there was the sense of saying, never mind how many days you live, live in such a way that your name will be remembered long after you're gone. Now, I think one of the reasons for the enduring sort of popularity of these poems is not just because we like the Greeks, but because it actually resonates with something deep inside of us, that there's something in us that says, yes, I want my life to count. I want there to be years from now, decades from now, where people think of my name or my life or my story, and they remember it. And maybe not because of achievement, but maybe because of a godly generation, and maybe because of three or four or five or six generations of godly children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And so we say, yes, my life has to matter until we live long enough to find our life derailing, to find the script sort of changing, until we live long enough to realize that, wait a minute, I don't have a story of glory. I have a story of disappointment and a story of failure, a story of heartache, a story of prodigal sons and daughters, a story of divorce, a story of things falling apart. And we say, well, that's nice, Achilles, to want glory. I wanted it too, but I don't seem to be able to have it. Now, in our day, things are just slightly more cynical because now, instead of saying we should have a story of glory, now we're confronted by voices that say, what if there is no story at all? A philosopher at NYU, his name is Thomas Nagel, he he wrote this. He said, you could write a great work of literature, maybe even as great as Homer, that continues to be read thousands of years from now, but eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and all trace of your effort will vanish. And if you think about the whole thing, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. Well, isn't that cheery? 
Harvard scientist Stephen Jay Gould says, We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. And this explanation, though superficially troubling, is ultimately liberating. Is it? He says it is because now we must construct these answers for ourselves. So the answer of the ancient Greeks was, look, achieve glory. And the answer of the sort of postmodern world is not all that different. It says, look, there is no meta-narrative, but you can make your life meaningful if you make meaning for yourself. In other words, go ahead and start that business. Go ahead and leave the job. Go ahead and move to the new city. Go ahead and do the startup that you've been aching to. Go ahead and do this. Go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do all these different things because, listen, there is no meaning except for the meaning that you create. There is no story except for the one that you write. Now, I don't know about you, but both of those options are ultimately depressing. The one that says that we've got to achieve glory for life to matter is depressing because that's going to exclude the majority of us, if not all of us. And the other one that says, hey, there is no transcendent received meaning. There's only discovered meaning. There's only a story that you write. So go ahead and take the pen in your hand and write. In the end, we we will find this to be disappointing as well because we find ourselves not only incapable of living the story of glory, but incapable of writing our story as well. And this is why the scripture invites us into something that is radically challenging. It would have been radically challenging to the ancient Greeks, and it is radically challenging to us. The scripture hands us not a book of rules and says, do these things. The scripture hands us not some sort of recipe book that we say, where's the formula for the blessed life? And let me just, yeah. The scripture starts with a story. The scripture begins with the grand narrative. In fact, Genesis is the Latin word for beginning. This first book of the Bible is named after its first few words, in the beginning. Any book that begins with in the beginning is a, is a tip right away. It tips you have to know right away. This is a story. This is a grand story. This is a big story in the beginning. It doesn't open with the words, okay, in order to live right, this is what you must do. It begins with the words that every storyteller knows, in the beginning. In the beginning. And it doesn't say, in the beginning, you. It says, in the beginning, God. And so right away, right from the first words of Scripture, we are confronted. There is a story, and it's God's story. In the beginning, God. When you read the book of Genesis, 1 through 11 are written in the Hebrew with a lot of poetry, a lot of play on words, a lot of playing with rhymes. When you read it, it it sounds very clever because there's a lot of the cadence of of these, these words that kind of play off one another, make it very obvious that these first 11 chapters in particular are a kind of poem, 2 and 3, more, more so than the rest of it, but 1 through 11 especially. And when you read it, what you discover is a number of things. First, you discover that there's a God who made this world on purpose and took pleasure in it. Now, this may seem like nothing to us because all of us who have grown up in the West, we are accustomed to reading Genesis and setting it against an evolution narrative. 
But in the ancient world, they, they weren't thinking about an evolution narrative. They were thinking about other stories of how the world began. And when you set this story next to the other stories of the ancient world, something very dramatic emerges. Because when you read other stories of how the world began, you, you read stories about the gods at war with one another, and boom, all of a sudden planets emerged as a result of those wars. One ancient story has, it, has a, a cosmic battle, and then one god ripped the guts out of another god and flung it into the cosmos, and voila, there was the moon. Like, wow, okay. Other narratives describe the picture of humans on the earth as, as a nuisance to the gods, kind of like ants, pests to be dealt with. But the Genesis story is different. It shows a God who made the world on purpose and with pleasure, and he called it good. It's remarkable. But then it doesn't take long for the storyteller to begin to show us God's good world beginning to come apart at the seams. You start to see the relationship between humanity and God come apart. They're hiding from God. Then you see the man and the woman relationship between male and female begin to pull apart. They're blaming each other. Then you see the very relationship between humanity and the earth begin to become oppositional and antagonistic. The ground will not cooperate with the desire to grow things. Then you see brother turn against brother in Cain and Abel. By the time you get to chapter 11, you see groups of people all of a sudden being divided with the Tower of Babel story. Now you see that human unity will never be enough and that the, the actual truth about civilization is its discord, not its potential. This means we are the world is not completely the answer. Coming together to sing something, do something, be, believe in humanity is not enough. Genesis 11 says, look, there was this time when they believed if we could just come together and be fellow humans. And the Babel story challenges that and says it will never be enough. Now, if you've ever read through the stories of Genesis and, and you've ventured beyond the, the story of Babel in chapter 11, you'll notice that it's a long genealogy that follows. And so many of us don't read. We read Babel and we're like, great, there's no flannel graph children's story for the genealogies. <laughs> but when you keep reading chapter 11, it tells us all the generations of, 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 of Noah's children and it gets all the way down to Abraham's, Abram's father, rather. And it talks about Abram's wife, Sarai. And then it says in verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Barrenness in the Old Testament was a metaphor, a picture, a profound and poignant picture of saying, this is the end of all human potential. Barrenness in the Old Testament is a picture that says to us, thus concludes the end of human possibilities. Imagine the story, how full of despair, how sharp the crisis is. The world is falling apart at the seams. Every relationship you can name has been broken and fractured. And oh, by the way, the generations end with this couple who can't continue their lineage. If the story were to end at Genesis 11, none of us would be here today. Literally and spiritually. 
But the story doesn't end there. Our series, we're going to be in this series all the way until Advent, the end of November, is through the life of Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1, is as dramatic of a verse as Genesis 1. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now everything was formless and void, but there was a voice. The Spirit was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be lights. The creating call of God made lights. And so in Genesis 12, verse 1, the creating call of God brings hope. Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God launching his plan to put the world back together again. It's very important that we underline and underscore the phrase where he says to Abram, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The chosen are chosen for the sake of the rest. The ones who are blessed are chosen, are blessed, so that blessing may flow through them to others. Right away, this is God saying, I am going to put it all back together again, and I'm going to do this through this family through these people and if you follow the next few verses Abram responds well he leaves the father's house there's an initial bit of obedience and you're like man this is so great what a hero and then you keep reading verse 10 now there was a famine in the land and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land and when he was about to enter Egypt he said to Sarai his wife hey honey uh I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. She's getting nervous at this point. Okay. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So I just, would you just say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Seems to be working. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This story is more complex than we think. Actually, there are enough details in the story to make us see that Genesis 12 is actually not just the story of Abram, but it's the story of Israel in miniature. This is the story of Israel. You notice any patterns? There was a famine in the land, and so they went down to Egypt. Say, that's what happened to Joseph's brothers, isn't it? Much later in the Genesis story. That's how they ended up in Egypt. And then... The Pharaoh, something happened, he wasn't happy with them, and God judged the Pharaoh with plagues. Moses, this happened with Moses. 
And then Pharaoh says, get the people, get your people and get out of here. This is exactly what happens with Moses. Now, tradition is that these Genesis stories are finally written down by whom? By Moses. And you can imagine Moses talking to the the, the people of Israel and saying to them, look, this whole business of running to Egypt because times are tough, this whole thing about things all of a sudden not going well and God rescuing us with plague by sending judgment on the Pharaoh with plagues and then rescuing. Look, we've been here before. We've been here before. This is not just the story of Abram in Genesis 12. This is a setup. It's the story of Israel in miniature. But it's not just the story of Israel. It's the story of us. It's the story of the whole human race. Think about this. With Adam, there was an initial period of of obedience where Adam obeys and he says, yes, God, I'll do this. I'll name the animals. We'll take care of the garden. And then with Adam, there is a deception that enters through the serpent. Now notice this. Catch this. There's an initial obedience from Abram, but the deception enters the story not from an outsider, but from Abram. In other words, sin may have entered the world through the devil, but it continues in the world through us. It continues in the world through us. See, in the Adam and Eve story, it's, we can blame the serpent. Oh, there was a, the, the, the deception came from the outside. But in the Abram story, the deception comes from within. Now, all of a sudden, we're saying, wait a minute, there's something similar, but there's something different. What entered the world through the serpent continues in the world through us. Abram is the deceiver in this story. In the Garden of Eden story, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, and he creates this distance between him and her. In the Abram story, he says, my sister, not my wife, a distance between him and her. Sin always causes separation. Sin separates. It happened in Eden. It's replaying again in the Abram story. This is the story of us. And then there is a rescue operation. The judgment of the wicked ruler. The ruler of this world. And the rescue of the people of God. That's the gospel in miniature. That's the story of salvation. That's the story of us. The judgment over the ruler, quote unquote, of this world. And the story of our rescue. All of a sudden, when we go through this series, I want you to see, this isn't just some story about some old guy a long time ago. This is your story. This is our story. This is the story of us. Of our deception. Of our separation. Of our rescue. Thanks be to God. It's a powerful thing when a story that you've had some distance from all of a sudden becomes your story. And you realize, this this is me. This is not just Abram. This is me. Listen to Galatians. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians 3. Understand that in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are the children of Abraham. That's why there's that children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Not because we're all Jews, but because we are part of this family through faith. Those who believe. But when he saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. What a phrase. 
We're going to look at this more in a minute, what it means to say that Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. Therefore, those who believe are blessed together with Abraham who believed. In other words, look, if you are here today and you've put your faith in the living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in this same family. This is your story. Many of you know that I was born in Malaysia, um, Malaysian citizen. When I was 10 years old, my, my parents were answering the call of God, and they had their own kind of Genesis 12 moment and left. And, and then my parents, me and my older sister, we all moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon. And my parents went to a Bible school there for three years. And, and you got to imagine, okay, for me, 10 years old, coming to America, it was like amazing. You know, it was I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. People say, well, how was that transition? It was awesome. We were coming to America. You know, I was happier than Eddie Murphy. And um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was fantastic. Those were great years. Uh, Pizza Hut Pizza was like, you know, this iconic meal. You know. And after three years, you know, their time at Bible school was over, and, and, and we were moved back to Malaysia, and... I was so sad about that, that having to move back, and, and really, uh, more it was a harder transition going back than it was to come here. And when we moved back, I, I had during my time in, in Portland, I had learned how to play the trumpet. This is uh, maybe news to some of you who don't play um, at all anymore, but in those years, I did. And so when I when we got back to Malaysia. I missed America so much that I played, no lie, I played the Star Spangled Banner every morning on my trumpet. <laughs> and the neighbors knew three things. They're back, he misses America, and he's not quite good at the trumpet yet. <laughs> you know? But I did this because I, it was just, ah, oh, my heart was there, and, and I, I continued my education via an, an American sort of homeschool thing, so all of my History lessons and all this stuff, you know, focused on American history, which that's a subject for another day, why Americans don't study world history as much as they study their own, but we'll leave that one alone. Um, <laughs> so I know a lot, I, I learned a lot of that, and all of these stories, and I was thinking, man, someday, someday I'll go back, someday we'll make it back, someday I'll come back to America to go to college. My, my older sister was first, she'd gotten a full ride at a, at a university here in the States, so she came back. Uh, she came, returned to the States first. And when I was 17, just a few months before my 18th birthday, it was my turn, and I'd gotten I enough scholarships to be able to make it work, and I arrived, <laughs> my own sort of Abraham moment, you know, leaving everything behind, arrived in the middle of the night, I'd missed like the orientation for new students, I was totally disoriented. And uh, some nice people helped me find which, where my dorm was, my room, and all the stuff, and and then when I graduated, I, I was a theological historical studies major. I graduated in 99, and the university invited me to stay on and, and lead worship for their chapel services. I thought it was a great honor. And I stayed on. I worked for them for a year. And then after that, uh, I made the transition over to Colorado Springs to work at New Life Church. And so I moved here, packed all my few belongings in a little black Jeep Cherokee and drove out here in the summer of 2000, moved here to start my new life at New Life. And a year after that, my college sweetheart, Holly, graduated in 2001, and we got married. There's a little picture. We got married at Shove Chapel. Look at that. Now, I put the picture up because this week we celebrate 15 years. So this was, you know, 
really cool. And we got married at Shove Chapel right over here by, in Colorado College campus, and then we had our reception over in, in Manitou. And, and then in 2010, I had had, you know, I had had the green card thing for a number of years, and in 2010, I had, it, it, all those conditions were right, and I completed the process of becoming a citizen of the United States. Now, it was not as glamorous of a ceremony as I had imagined in my mind, it was really me and like six other people in a small office up in Denver, and Holly was there, of course, and, and there's this video that you watch, the president welcoming you and telling you about all the other famous immigrants, and you're like, I'll be like them, you know. And I have this picture of me by the flag, and I've got this certificate, and I, you know, I've taken the oath and all this stuff, and it was a powerful moment. And I realized from that day on that all of a sudden, all of these stories that I had only read about were now my story. That all of a sudden, this history that was a distant history was actually my history. It's a we and an us. In 2013, just three years ago this weekend, my parents moved to the States. I was able, we were able to be their sponsors and help them get their residency here. They just marked three years of being here in the States. A couple months ago, Holly, my wife, and I were in New York, and we were attending a conference, and we took the ferry, and we sailed past the Statue of Liberty. Some of you maybe have done it. And I, it, 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 I had a little bit of a moment there just looking at it, thinking about how many immigrants have come to these shores. I didn't come via Ellis Island, but this is a symbol, a symbol of what it means. Bring me your tired, your huddled masses, your poor. Your... And it began to occur to me what a beautiful story I am now part of. I joined this long line of people who've been grafted into this story. Now, this is a, a poor, kind of imperfect picture. But the actual story that you've been grafted into is glorious. All of a sudden, you, you say, wait a minute, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's not just some textbook I'm reading about. This is my family history. And be warned, it's not all pretty. <laughs> There's some weird stuff in here. Sorry, man, it's your family now. You know, this is your story. You're part of this. In 2008, I, I went back to Malaysia, Holly and I, and our two girls at the time, we only had our older two, and we went back to Malaysia to be part of a conference, and there was one day when all of a sudden all of this became really um, profound to me in a, in a particular way because this young man was driving us around from the, from the place where we were staying to the church where the conference was, and Toward the end of the week, he, he kind of got up the courage, and he's like, Glenn, I, did you know that I, I, I studied in the States, too? I said, oh, wow, where did you go to college? And he told me somewhere in Michigan. And, and he said, Glenn, I, I actually had a job lined up. I was going to stay on in the States and, and, and work. And he says, but it didn't work out. I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know. And he said, yeah, I've often thought, you know, my, my life could have been a bit like yours. I could have ended up, you know, being in, in the States longer, but it, it didn't work out for me. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you see, I graduated from college in 2001. And when I applied for a work visa, September 11th had already happened. And he said, at that time, they just weren't allowing anybody. It was, it was very tight. And he said, so I didn't, I didn't get it. So I came back to Malaysia. And I'm sitting in his car, and I'm thinking, wow, what do you say? 
Because what had I done? What had I done to have a university that was willing to pay legal fees for someone to lead worship twice a week at chapel so that I could get a work visa? What had I done for a church in Colorado Springs to say, sure, we'll pay thousands of dollars in legal fees so that he could have a religious worker's visa so he could be a worship intern at New Life Church? What had I done to deserve that? All of this is just a drop of what it's like to think about how we've been brought into a story much bigger, much bigger than the story of America, as beautiful as that is. When you think about the story that you've been brought into because of Jesus, it's not just the story of Abraham, it's not just the story of Israel, it's not just the story of humanity, it's the story of grace. This is the story of grace. This is a story of God bringing in people who had no business being part of the story. That's why right a few breaths after calling Abraham, we're introduced to his worst sin. We're introduced to his ugly side. We're introduced to the deception and the darkness of his own heart. Why? So that we won't for a second be tempted to believe, well, of course God chose Abraham. The man had a lot of faith. Are you kidding? So much fear that he was about to sell his wife away as a... What? Paul says it this way in Romans 4. So what are we going to say? Are we going to find that Abraham is our ancestor on the basis of genealogy? Paul is writing to these Jews in Rome who were so proud to be Abraham's descendants. And he says, look, because if Abraham was made righteous because of his actions, he would have had reason to brag, but not in front of God. Maybe you find Abraham impressive, Paul says. But let's take a closer look at the story. What does the scripture say? Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Workers' salaries aren't credited to them on the basis of an employer's grace. Did you catch that? Workers' salaries are not credited to them on the basis of the employer's grace, but rather on the basis of what they deserve. But faith is credited as as righteousness to those who don't work because they have faith in God who makes the ungodly righteous. What's Paul saying? A gift is not a wage. A gift is not a wage. If you think that God's blessing on Abraham was because he earned it or worked for it, you haven't got the idea of a gift. A gift is not a wage. And Paul's saying, look, you want to brag about being descendants of Abraham? He wasn't that great of a guy. He didn't earn this. If you, all of you that that get a paycheck, you don't go to your boss on payday and be like, oh my gosh, wow, thank you. (laughs) Right? You're like, darn right, I got this checked. A wage is different than a gift. How many of us think that the story of God is the story of a wage that we have to earn? Paul goes on, he says, but the scripture that says it was credited to him wasn't written only for Abraham's sake, it was written also for our sake because it is going to be credited to us too. It will be credited to those of us who have faith in the one that Jesus, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. As we get through this Abraham story, we're going to see this theme of the God who raises the dead. Do you know why that's such a massive theme in the Abraham story and in the gospel story? Because when you catch grace, you realize that with God, the promise does not match the potential. 
The promise does not match the potential. If God had in mind to pick someone who had potential, he would not have picked an old man with a wife who could not bear children. If God wanted to, to pick people that looked sharp, well, th- these people have it, good lineage. No. Rabbinic traditions, Abraham's father was an idol maker. I mean, if you're going to pick some, I mean, why, why, why? Because with God, the promise does not match the potential. It doesn't match the possibility. There was barrenness, and yet God brings life. There was unworthiness, and yet God pronounces blessing. The promise never matches the potential. Grace is a gift that we could never deserve. Never deserve. Never, never have deserved. Now, this flies in the face of that American story. That story of saying, well, if you arrive and if you work hard, then you can have anything you want. It's like, yeah, there's some truth to that. Sure, that plays out in this way and this way and that way. But you know what? It's ultimately not the truth about life. Paul will say to the Corinthians, what is it that you have that you didn't receive as a gift? Everything that matters has been given to us. This is the story of a gift. So this morning I want to say to us, maybe you're here trying to write your own story, trying to take the advice of the culture around us and says, I will make meaning of my own life. I will beat the pavement. I will make my business work. I will do this. And when I do this, I will make my life happen the way I want my life to happen. I can do this. I've got bad news for you. You can't. And I've got good news for you. You don't need to. You don't need to. Or maybe you're here and you think, well, I've got to find a way to win God's favor. I'm not trying to write my own story, but I know that in following God, if I do this, then he will do this. I mean, Glenn, the Bible's full of all those, right? If I do this, then, then he'll do this. Sure, sure, sure. But look at the meta-narrative of the Bible. When did the people of God actually keep up their end of the bargain? How did it work out for the if-then people? If I do this, then God. How, how'd that work out in the big story? It didn't. Keep following the story of Israel and you'll see, you'll find yourself on the edge of the cliff at the end of the Old Testament. It doesn't work. So if you're trying to find a way to secure God's blessing, well, if I do this, then my kids will be godly. And if I do this, then my business will be blessed. And if I do this, then my life will be happy. And if I do, if I, if I, if I, I've got bad news for you. You can't secure God's blessing. But I've got good news for you. You don't need to. You don't need to. Because with God, it is not a wage, it is a gift. It is not a wage, it is a gift. It is a gift, it is a gift. I think this morning there's a sense in which God is inviting us to put down your pen. Not in the you know, micro decision making where it's like, no, I don't know, God, tell me what to do. But in the big scheme of things with your life, put down the pen. You don't have to write this story. He's invited you into his. And how do you know that you're living God's story? How do you know? You know how I think you know? You can see traces of grace all through it. You look at it and you're like, wow, that was a gift. That was a gift. That was a gift. That was a gift. Thank you, God. 
You can never have gratitude and praise if you insist on seeing life with God as salary that you earn. Okay, I'm going to do this, God, and you're going to do this. I'm going to do you. Forget it. Right here, week one of this series, put the pen down and understand that what you've been given is a gift. Come into this story.